Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege it is to come together as your people, remembering that we gather here because of who you are, what you have done. We celebrate and honour and worship the name of Jesus. Because in him we are new people. We are a redeemed people, a rescued people, new creations. And Lord, we thank you that you have not called us as orphans, as it were. We, we're not alone. You have brought us into your family. And so we call out to you this morning, Lord, speak to us, we pray. You have the words of eternal life. And in your name we pray, amen. Okay, we're going to continue our series through the book of Philippians, A Fellowship of Joy, it's called. Um, Except that today, one week into it, we're going to start talking about suffering. (laughs) A fellowship of joy, but this week is a fellowship of suffering. And it might sound strange that as we begin our series on joy, we've barely made a start. And here we are talking about suffering. We're going to do so because Paul does in the letter. But I think that you'll see that even this passage is actually about joy. So make sure you've got your Bibles open in front of you to the book of Philippians chapter 1. If you're looking at it on a digital screen, which is a phone or an iPad, can I recommend turning on the do not disturb? Just so that you're not being distracted by notifications of some other sort. I think you'll see that the passage we're looking at today is actually, even though it talks a lot about suffering, it is actually about joy. A deeper joy even that runs, I think, straight and true and even when it faces the crucibles of pain and suffering and disappointment that we often face in this life, I think that out of this passage that we're going to see Three gospel-born realities that shape joy in us even while suffering, and maybe especially while suffering is a part of our story. So here's the first one. If you like taking notes and you're a follow-along person, the first one is this. Life is not about me. Life is not about me. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 1, starting from verse 12. I'm just going to read down to verse 18. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible today. Follow along with me the best that you can. Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. The first thing to clarify here is what Paul means when he says, Now I want you to know what has happened to me. Back in verse 12. He's talking about being imprisoned for his faith. Because Paul believed in Jesus... And because Paul spoke openly about his faith, he was arrested, probably beaten, and thrown into jail. This isn't imagined persecution. This isn't a perceived slight against me. Or maybe... It it, it certainly wasn't a diminished opportunity. What Paul was experiencing was blatant religious persecution. If this happened in our time and in our country, well, we'd probably start a petition or something. Or at least we'd share a snarky update on our social media account. If it was super serious, we might even change to a temporary profile picture to indicate our support. Let me emphasize something. Paul was experiencing significant persecution for his faith in Jesus. This is something that none of us want It's something we consider a bad thing. And we will do almost anything to avoid it. And for this reason, we should pay close attention to what Paul says about his suffering. Paul says, I want you to know what's happened to me. So what he's about to say, we should pay attention to. Here's the first thing that he makes mention of. My suffering advanced the gospel. All right, that should surprise us. Because most of the time we've bought into the public opinion that suffering and persecution will diminish the gospel. We say if people persecute us, the gospel won't be free and it won't go out. Paul says that's garbage. Persecution happened and the gospel advanced. You see, if comfort is our king, if ease is your goal, then persecution and suffering is a massive threat. But what if Jesus is king? What if the gospel is the goal? That's great. That makes the difference. Suffering and persecution advance the cause of the gospel 
as we grow to realize that this life, both good and bad, is not ultimately about me and my comfort. Instead, Paul says that his suffering advanced the gospel in at least three different ways. And I want you to take note of them. First one's found in verse 13. Paul says the first way that the gospel advanced is that there was an increase of gospel awareness with outsiders. Do you see that in verse 13? Paul's imprisonment was plainly a gospel-related issue, and even non-Christians could see that. He says that even all the temple guards and all the other people around him, they could see that this was about the gospel. This was about the good news of Jesus. It wasn't ambiguous why Paul was in jail. It wasn't vague. People weren't wondering what scandal had taken place for Paul to end up in jail. They didn't wonder if there was some other agenda going on. Paul's suffering had a direct connection to the increased gospel awareness amongst those who needed to know its saving power. So the very first way that the gospel advanced through Paul's suffering was that the people around him became aware of the gospel. They looked at Paul's life in jail and they connected it with the fact that he was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They became aware of the good news themselves. That's why Peter, when he writes his letters to suffering Christians all over the place, he says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Really? If we suffer for righteousness, we're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, he says. Or down in verse 17 of the same chapter, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There are different types of suffering in this world. And then not all of them are connected to the type of suffering or the circumstances of our suffering. Paul says there are, Peter says there's actually a better, a better type of suffering when it's connected to God's purpose. So the first way that the gospel advanced was that people became aware of the gospel. Outsiders, non-believers became aware of the good news of Jesus because of Paul's suffering. Number two, there was boldness in gospel proclamation. You can see that in verse 14. He says, most of, the, most of the brothers, most of the brothers have become bold. Right? This one's surprising as well, right? Paul is imprisoned for his faith. Now imagine that. Imagine that that was uh, a story that we bring forward and put into the context of this church in 2021. Um, Tim's out on the corner preaching the gospel. He's not doing it through a bullhorn. He's going to be a lot more sort of, um, he's going to sing a song, all right? He's going to turn the gospel into a musical. And um, no, he's going to just come alongside of someone. He's going to sit down with them. He's going to share his faith with them. And everyone in town knows, oh, there's, there's Tim from up that church up there, that pink church up in the corner. 
Uh, he's down there sharing his faith again. And, and you know what? The town council here, the local council, Port Stephens, they, they're in a uproar about it. He doesn't have a ticket, a license. He's not approved. And one day the police come along and they arrest him. They say, Tim, you can't preach the gospel. You're going to jail. They throw him in jail. What does that do to us? Here's one thing it could do. Man, if Tim preached the gospel and he got sent to jail, I'm not going to go preach the gospel. Because I don't want to end up in jail. My comfort, my ease, my security is king. So if that happened to Tim, I'm not going to do the same thing. But look, but look at the surprising turn of events in verse 14. Paul is imprisoned for his faith, but rather than growing timid, the other Christians start stepping up to the plate. Because comfort wasn't king. Ease wasn't the goal. The gospel was. And so they said, all right, send Tim to jail. There are 200 others of us. Yeah. Right? Send him off. Hopefully you let him out. (laughs) But that's not going to stop us. That's what happened in the church. That's what happened when Paul was imprisoned. It's like that moment in the movie as two armies sort of stand, you know, staring at each other across an open field. Those old war-type movies, a Braveheart or that type of thing. It's not an open endorsement, by the way. One, one army stands as sort of an innumerable mass on one side of the field. Then, then there's another army standing on this side of the field... They're the, uh, the likeable underdogs. They face certain defeat. They all think, as they're about to square off with each other, that one of them should just turn tail and run for the hills, right? Well, there's no way of winning this war. Until, until the likeable hero steps forward, brandishes his sword... And just looks around at his crew and says, come on, let's, let's go. It's a good day to die. He runs off into certain defeat, certain death. Now the movie makers, they amp this up a little bit, right? Usually the camera cuts to some bloke with a missing tooth, puts his hand on his son's shoulder and says, well, looks like it is a good day to die, son. Let's run off and join, you know. But what happens? The army is inspired, they... They follow their leader. Why do people do that? If it's about their own comfort and their safety, they they never will. But if we grasp that we are a part of something bigger than us, if we grasp that God is at work in this world with his own agenda, if we grasp that the brief span of our life is not the whole story, That the gospel is the goal. If we grasp that we come under the kingship of Jesus, then we can also look at each other with our goofy smiles and we can say confidently, it looks like it's a good day to die. The gospel, and in particular Paul's suffering, 
It actually inspired others to be bold in sharing their faith. Here's the third way that the gospel advances through suffering. Jesus is made much of. Paul says Jesus is made much of. From verses 15 down to verse 18, it's a really interesting passage, especially read in the light of how much effort we put into our own personal platform building within modern Christianity. It seems that there were some people who were jealous of Paul's influence amongst the churches. They saw his imprisonment as a great opportunity to step up into the public spotlight for a while and get a bit of attention for themselves. So while Paul was in prison, we see a sudden influx of other preachers. One group who just got on with it, starting where Paul left off, while there was another group of preachers who had an ulterior motive. They wanted attention for themselves and maybe they wanted to even discredit Paul and his influence. Here's how Paul responds to that. Who cares? He says, what does it matter? Verse 18, have a look at it. What does it matter, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed. That's Paul's ultimate concern. Is Jesus being proclaimed? I don't care why you're proclaiming him. Just proclaim him. So if you're out there wanting to discredit me by preaching the gospel, preach away, brother. (laughs) As long as Jesus is being proclaimed, Paul says, I will rejoice. So... Paul's suffering causes the the gospel to advance in three different ways. Outsiders became more aware of the gospel. Christians became bolder. And Jesus was being proclaimed. And Paul said, bring it on. If that's what it takes, because he understands this is not about me. Paul says, this is not about me. My suffering is not about me. Is Christ being preached? Yep. Okay, that's all that matters. Let's move on. So the first thing that we understand from that passage, life's not about me. Second thing is this. Life is actually all about Jesus. Read with me from verse 18 again. We'll pick it up where we left off. What does it matter, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honoured in my body, whether by life or by death, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now if we live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this... 
I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. This is a fairly long section of the verses that we're going to cover today, but I really just have one point about it. If life isn't about me, that was our first point, then it must be about Jesus. So with that reality sort of firmly in mind, Paul has an unwavering confidence that everything was going to turn out okay. I watched recently an interview with uh, Tim Keller. Some of you may know or have read him, seen him before, a pastor in New York and an author. And he was asked about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this guy's brilliant. I, I read his stuff and you sort of have to stop and just go, Man, this guy, like he's just, I can tell he's just dumbing it down for all of us normal people. Like he's just a brilliant mind. And, and when I heard the interview, I sort of sat back thinking, wow, he's going to unload some rich and deep theological insights about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, about what that does to our state and how we are viewed by God and in this world. I was expecting all of this deep and rich stuff. Instead... Tim Keller leaned back on his chair and with a gentle and deeply intimate tone that revealed, I think, just how precious this truth is to him, he said this, if Jesus really rose from the dead and promises that we, along with all creation, will find our resurrection in him as well, then despite what you are experiencing right now, I want you to know that it's going to be okay. It's going to turn out okay. What's important to see in Paul's confident assurance was that he didn't mean that he expected to be released and that his suffering would end. You see in verse 20, have a look at it. My eager expectation and hope is that I will be, I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's assurance and confidence in Christ in the midst of his suffering was not that it's all going to be okay means that I'm going to be released from prison and be happy in a month's time. Paul's confidence that it will be all okay was that Christ would be honoured in my body whether it's by life or by death. Because his goal was the gospel and his king was Jesus. Life and death were almost irrelevant details in this equation for Paul's thinking. Paul's primary concern was that he would be unashamedly able to say that Christ was honoured in my life. Because it's not about me. And it's all about him. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't wrestle with the tension of life and death. 
He does so in a very peculiar way. Quite famously, here's my summary of his tension, these, I think, fairly famous verses, verses 22 down to verse 24. Here's my summary of them. This is where he says, you know, if I, if I die, well, that's good, but if I live, that's good too. What do I do? Do I live? He says, I don't know which way to, I don't know which way to turn, he says. I, I wrestle with it. But here's the summary. Option one, death. Here's what that means. It means more Jesus for me. <laughs> That's Paul's, Paul's conclusion. He says, life and death. If I go to be with Jesus, I gain Jesus, right? He says, That's preferable. <laughs> That's desirable. That's good. More Jesus for me. Option two, life. More Jesus for you. He says, if I stay, if I live, then it's fruitful ministry and I'm able to engage and strengthen your faith and point you more to Jesus. And that's good too. So he says, in fact, I realize that even though I'd rather be with Jesus in person, it's, it's best if I stay here and give you more Jesus for a while. So death means more Jesus for me. Life means more Jesus for you. Either way, there's more Jesus, right? Because life isn't about me. Life is about Jesus. Whatever the outcome, Paul's highest concern was that Jesus would be made much of. Third thing I want you to notice from this passage down to the end of the chapter, from verses 27 just to verse 30. Read along with me. This is about a life lived worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. There's that phrase in there which has been, um, been a struggle for me over my life. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Just one thing, he says. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Of the gospel. Let me be completely transparent with you about how this verse has impacted me. For a very long time in my Christian walk, and in seductive ways, I would say even today, I understood this verse to mean that my life needed to be worthy of the gospel. That's what it says, doesn't it? But there is a right way to read that, and a very damaging way. So let me try and illustrate it like this. One of my favourite war movies of all time is a movie called Saving Private Ryan. Not sure if you've seen it. If you're young, you shouldn't have, and you shouldn't do for some, quite some time. The movie plot follows a close-knit group of soldiers who are sent on a special mission 
to find a soldier who is missing in action during World War II. Tom Hanks plays Captain John Miller, who leads his men through the hazards of war in a humanitarian effort to bring home Private James Ryan, played by Matt Damon. Along the way, he loses most of his men, as in they're killed. He loses most of his men in an effort to save one. Towards the end of the movie, wounded and dying, Captain Miller whispers into Ryan's ear, repeating with his dying breath, earn this. Earn it. It's possibly one of my favourite war movies of all time, but, but that line devastates me every time. Because earn this will crush a man. Earn it will destroy a woman. And we see it. The movie closes with an ageing Ryan late in his life kneeling over the grave of Captain Miller and sobbing uncontrollably as he tries to reconcile his life with the sacrifice that was made for it. And he says at the grave of his old friend, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope it was enough. And that's how I read that verse. Live a life worthy of the gospel. You see, I'm tempted to read that verse even today and hear, earn it. Earn this. And if you read it like that, it will crush you. You will rest your head every night on your pillow with the uncertain dread of facing the grave with the same hollow hope that James Ryan had. I've tried to live the best life that I could. I hope it was enough. That's not what Paul meant. A life worthy of the gospel doesn't mean you earn it. Instead, a life worthy of the gospel means you reflect it. Your life reflects the gospel and the grace in which we stand. I can tell that because that's exactly what Paul says. It's how he goes on to explain those last few verses. Remember that the exhortation that Paul's giving is about how to experience suffering in this world. And he points to his own suffering as an example. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you, this is verse 27, 28, whether I see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. You are standing firm in one spirit. A gospel-worthy life one that reflects the grace that we've been given in Christ will stand under pressure. It doesn't waver, it doesn't run, it isn't blown about like a wave on the sea. Its security is found in Christ and the reality of our inheritance in Him. 
And you might be thinking, Chris, I'm not sure how much more I can stand. I'm not sure how much stronger I can be. I am tired and I'm weak and I'm weary. Please don't ask me to just to try harder. To do more or be better. I'm not sure that I can. And I would say that me too. Me too. That's the earn it message. And that's not what I'm talking about. Because I want you to notice something else in here. It says stand firm in one spirit. A life that is worthy of the gospel doesn't suffer in solitude. A life that is worthy of the gospel doesn't suffer in solitude. When we suffer as a follower of Christ, we join a fellowship of suffering that Christ himself inaugurated. We have the one who has been the headstone of our faith. He has suffered like none of us could ever imagine. We join his suffering. We join the countless saints over the centuries who have suffered. We stand with them also. We stand with each other in our own suffering. We stand firm, but we don't stand alone. It's good for us to laugh with each other. It is. But it's even better to weep with each other. To enter into each other's suffering and each other's pain and to bear the load with each other and to share the burden with each other. We stand firm with one spirit together. And then he says, in one accord, contending together for the faith. I actually really like how the ESV phrases this particular verse. Let me read it to you. Verse 27 this is the one I'm talking about in the English Standard Version. It says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. This is the phrase, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. That's a beautiful picture of how the local church is a community of fellow sufferers and saints. One body who shares one mind and strives side by side. A church that links arms with others in their pain. Who refuses to cast off the weak. Who will wade into the fire to snatch those who wander. Who opens their hearts to the wounded. Who will stand guard over the weary while they rest. This is a church that will strive side by side. Not for their comfort, not for their rights, but for the faith of the gospel. For the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And finally, he says, don't be frightened by your opponents. Right? This is the reality. We will face opponents in this life. You may not have yet. That's fortunate of you. But you will. I'm not even talking about people who you just don't click with a little bit or don't like your humour or your personality. But very real opponents. People who despise you because you unashamedly cling to Christ. You will meet these people. And this is where it's so important for us to grasp these gospel realities and remind each other of them daily. 
It's why it's so important not to give up meeting together, especially now when we have the freedom to do so. Let me finish by reading to you some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Romans 8, reading from verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. So here's how we find joy amidst this fellowship of suffering that we experience in this life. Firstly, life is not about me. It's not. Two, Life is all about Jesus. And three, we live lives worthy of the gospel. Not to earn it, but to reflect it. Lord Jesus, help us in our suffering, we pray. Be near to the brokenhearted today. You are the God who bends low and draws near those who are bruised and battered You are the shepherd that leaves the flock to find the lost. You are the father that runs to embrace the son that wanders. You are gentle and lowly at heart. And you have called us your children. In our suffering, Lord, help us to see you and the good news of grace that you have brought to be the goal. Help us, we pray. Amen.